singularity. So we're here today with Carl Schroeder in uh, his house, in his uh, living room actually. And uh, the reason for us uh, visiting him is because Carl is one of the local and well-known Toronto science fiction writers. But he's also, interestingly enough, uh, one of those uh, rare, to my knowledge, uh, science fiction authors who, in fact, have a degree in foresight also. So, um, welcome to the show, Carl, and uh, thanks for having us in your house. Well, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to be on the show. It's uh, going to be a lot of fun. I hope so. I hope so. So, uh, let's begin our conversation today with um, your background and perhaps you could share with us how and why you got interested in becoming a science fiction writer in the first place. Well, it was interesting. Uh, I was very, very young when I discovered a couple of books in uh, the bookshelf in our house in Brandon, Manitoba, uh, with uh, Schrader on the spine. Um, it turned out that my mother uh, wrote a couple of nurse romances um, when I was uh, uh, two or three years old and had them published by Zondervan Books. So it was uh, pretty clear to me that since everybody's mom wrote novels, it was uh, an option for me as well. Um, as to science fiction, uh, my mom was a big reader in the family and uh, we had a shelf of about six feet of Georgette Hare novels, and under that about six feet of uh, uh, Agatha Christie novels, and under that about six feet of Andre Norton, who is was a uh, uh, 1950s to 70s uh, sort of space opera author, uh, very much young adult or, or um, sort of kids-oriented books. Um, and I guess I was too short to reach the Agatha Christie or the Georgette Hare uh, shelves. I, I read the Andre Norton and I got hooked uh, at, at that point. Years later, many, many years later, I discovered that um, I was not the first science fiction writer to come out of the southern Manitoba um, Mennonite community. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, my mother uh, told me at one point that she knew this family called the Votes. Uh, V-O-G-T, um, and uh, who lived in the same uh, small town when she was growing up. And one of their sons um, left, moved down to California, changed his name to uh, A.E. Van Vogt, and became one of the classic Golden Age science fiction writers. But I didn't find this out until I was about 35, <laughs> and well on my way to uh, you know, being published and, and uh, established. So let me stop you right there for one second and ask you this. You have a very interesting background, culturally speaking, coming from a Mennonite community. Did this color or uh, sort of have any impact uh, on your writing career as a science fiction writer and in what way if it did so? I think that being a, a Mennonite had a profound effect on me, but not in the ways that you might uh, initially think. I mean, the the the... There's a key moral stance to the Mennonites, of course, that the, they are pacifists. Um, and uh, uh, our community um, was uh, uh, driven out of Ukraine and southern Russia during the war between the Reds and the Whites. And some had fled earlier. Um, and uh, so there was a lot of um, 
talk about Nestor Machno and the anarchists and uh, um, the pogroms that, that affected us. But the main thing that was really um, an influence on me was the, the fact that the Mennonites have always treated themselves as a people apart. Um, there are communities that, that, that are like that, and religious communities, um, sometimes like the Hutterites or the old Mennonites, who, who literally physically segregate themselves away from the rest of the world. The, uh, the general conference Mennonites that, uh, that uh, I come from were happy to live in towns and have you know, the same sorts of jobs as everybody else, but they treated themselves and thought of themselves as distinct and different. Um, and somehow I grew up with this instinctive uh, uh, habit of stepping away and stepping back from whatever community or whatever circumstance I was in and looking at it as if I were an outsider. Um, uh, though I'm not, I'm you know, completely involved and completely part of uh, you know, the, the world that, uh, that I'm in. But there's a habit of mind that seems to have been developed. Um, uh, Dexter there wants to be interviewed too. Yes, he's he very much needs a, a film career, I think. Um, but it's it's the it's the tendency to always step back and and be slightly aloof. Um, and I think that 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 comes from the Mennonite uh, uh, background. What it's done is it allowed is it allowed me to always look at things. Uh, as if they could be other than they are. Mm -hmm. Well, let me push you a little bit more on the pacifist end of things then. So you come up from a community which is uh, well known for its uh, pacifist um, ethics, and yet you somehow uh, end up doing a degree in foresight, and you end up writing a book uh, for the Canadian military, um, pertaining counterinsurgency effort uh, in the future. Mm, uh, sure. <laughs> sort of conflict in Africa, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So is there any contradiction there or? Uh, I don't think so, no. The, um, uh, I mean, how does a pacifist become an expert on counterinsurgency? Well, be because you read a lot of books uh, where things blow up. I mean, uh, <laughs> my, my background is Mennonite, but of course, um, that's just my background. Uh, I, I have my own um, sort of moral interpretations of things, and my own uh, uh, development has happened. Uh, I'm not a Mennonite anymore. Um, I'm I'm not, I would think, uh, a pacifist anymore. Although I'm acutely aware of the the virtues of it, and uh, it's it's my first inclination. I have a lot to say about the uh, the Hunger Games, for instance, uh, on the subject of uh, nonviolent resistance and the, the lack of the same uh, uh, as an option in that story. Um, Coming from a Mennonite background, the Hunger Games seems to be a uh, uh, um, a distorted moral message. Um, but uh, I have to say, I just happened to watch the movie yesterday, and I haven't read the book. But I personally was it was like abysmal. <laughs> In my opinion, it was like it was absolutely. Uh, I cannot find probably enough bad things to say about it, so I'll, I'll just stop myself. Well, it's quite apart from the merits of the, the story uh, as such. Um, 
there are deeper purposes to um, uh, uh, to storytelling. And in the case of Crisis in Zephyr, which was the piece that I wrote for the Canadian Army, um, it was the first of a, of a couple uh, of pieces that I've actually uh, written. The, uh, the scenario that was being spoken of was... Uh, uh, of uh, Canadian peacekeepers trying to stabilize a, uh, a urban city-state uh, in advance of elections. Um, so uh, there's a pretty strong moral case to be made for uh, the police action that's described in that. Uh, and I did view that through the lens of uh, you know, the background uh, that I had. Um, but I was also working as a, as a futurist and as a commercial uh, writer at that point. I had a client who um, had uh, particular um, uh, things that they wanted to say. Uh, and uh, as a matter of professionalism, uh, you know, it was not my job to get in the way of that, but to facilitate the, the, uh, their message as, as best I could. And apparently I did a pretty good job because... Uh, the, that uh, story was excerpted in Harper's Magazine, and uh, I'm told that Crisis in Zephyr is really popular with the U.S. Marines. <laughs> That's very, very interesting. So um, let's move on a little bit uh, and dive into your foresight degree. So I get your early interest in uh, science fiction, but... There are very few other science fiction writers who actually have a degree in foresight. So why get a degree in foresight in the first place? I don't think that there was such a thing as a, uh, a degree in strategic foresight uh, prior to a few years ago. Um, futurism is something that evolved out of the Rand Corporation and uh, uh, military simulations in the, in the post-war era. Um, and it didn't really start to become a, a, a discipline in and of itself until the 70s or 80s, perhaps at the, uh, the earliest. Um, there are now a few universities around the world that, uh, that uh, grant degrees. Uh, there's one in Hawaii, um, uh, for instance. Uh, there's one in Australia, Brisbane, I think. Um, I just interviewed John Smart last week for uh, Singularity One-on-One. And he told me, he's also another well-known futurist. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he told me that the first uh, program in the world that was created in the 1970s at the heyday of the Apollo program was at Houston. Oh, yeah. In the University of Houston. Yes, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, there have only been a very few places where such things have been offered. And uh, um, uh, Ontario College of Art and Design... Uh, has recently become a accrediting uh, university, and they uh, offered a new degree program in uh, 2008 um, in strategic foresight and innovation. It's a um, kind of a design view of the of, of the future. And I had been telling my wife that I would never go back to school unless the perfect program came along, uh, and then the perfect program came along. So uh, I I leaped on it. Um, it was a two year part time program, and. Uh, um, covered everything from systems theory to uh, um, human factors and design, um, uh, qualitative research methods uh, within uh, foresight, uh, history of foresight, uh, workshopping and um, uh, scenario design, and, and uh, you know all of these things. 
much of which I'd already been doing because uh, I uh, had been doing foresight work since about uh, uh, 2002 for various clients like the, the military. So, so how is it helping a science fiction writer to go through a program like that? Well, uh, it turns out that science fiction and foresight serve slightly different ends, and they're they're, they're kind of complementary, um, which I suppose I knew in a in a vague sort of way. But uh, the foresight work has uh, given me a whole set of new tools for looking at the future and for looking at situations. Um, for instance, uh, technological developments and uh, potential developments, um, and situations or scenarios that look like they're entrenched and unchangeable. Um, for instance, the, uh, the current technological mix that we have right now, uh, built around roads, um, highways, cars, um, fossil fuels, and so on. It's extremely difficult to imagine um, that being transformed. Science fiction writers try and do so using the tools they've got, but Foresight gives you uh, a whole new set of tools um, for doing it. And uh, my science fiction has gotten a lot more interesting since I took the degree, I think. Um, and my foresight work has always benefited from the, uh, the, the science fiction. So. so perhaps I should stop you here and just ask you for a second to differentiate between foresight and science fiction. Mm -hmm. So what is foresight? How is it different from science fiction? And what is science fiction in its own right? <laughs> People have a tendency to think that uh, foresight is, uh, or has something to do with prediction. Um, but it's actually impossible to predict the future. Um, rather than trying to predict the future, what people do when they do foresight is uh, attempt to build resilience in the face of unpredictable change. And uh, that involves imagining um, alternative futures. Um, Typically, if you have a single view of the, of the future, you are uh, in, already in trouble. Um, the, uh, the idea is to uh, have a spectrum of possibilities in mind and then design strategies for your organization, yourself, or your, your, your government, or whatever, um, that uh, will make you successful in the broadest possible number of situations. Um, uh, it, it sounds a little bit dry, but basically what it, it, it uh, boils down to is uh, uh, you're trying to inoculate yourself against surprise. You're not trying to find out what will happen, but when the inevitable surprise comes along, uh, you want to be ready for it. Science fiction, on the other hand, is all about uh, developing um, a particular stance towards the future and towards change in general. And uh, again, that sounds pretty dry. I'm, I'm sort of leaning into the academic side of it here. Um, but science fiction is about possibilities for which a probability can't be assigned. Um, and foresight is often about the same thing. Um, we spend much of our lives trying to gauge what's likely to happen. Science fiction gives us a way to uh, speculate about um, sheer possibility. Um, like perfect or absolute possibility, um, unconnected to probability, unconnected to uh, likelihood or plausibility or any of those things that sort of chain us down to the ordinary. Uh, because it does that, it allows our imaginations to, to, to go uh, places they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And uh, uh, 
in foresight, the same um, uh, ability, the ability to uh, s- simply imagine sh- uh, purely possible, uh, if improbable futures, allows us to uh, find the gaps in our own uh, preparedness. So let let us <coughs> attempt to do a little foresight exercise here in that case, Dan. And, um, let me invite you to do so with the following questions. So, if you were to weigh the technological singularity as one possible future event, how probable do you think it is? I would not assign a probability to uh, something like the technological singularity. Um, I tend to think of the singularity not as a a possible event, but as a a theory of change. Uh, but there are other theories of change that are possible. Uh, well, let's rewind that a bit and, or sort of unpack it. Um, when you're dealing with the future, um, you're always in danger of uh, a particular problem, and that is that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If all you have is one model for change or one model for, uh, uh, for the future, then everything that you see and all of your planning is going to be pre- predicated on that. Uh, that's building a conceptual Maginot line um, uh, in the sense that um, uh, it's not resilient, it's brittle. Uh, you only have one view of the future, uh, you will inevitably be surprised. And uh, although the, the, the idea of the sing- technological singularity is one that embraces the, the concept of surprise, um, it really should be part of a spectrum of different uh, analyses. So I would use the technological singularity as a filter or as a lens to look at the future, but then I put it down and I pick up another one um, and view the, that same future through that lens and see how that differs and pick, put it down and pick up another one and start triangulating um, on uh, these different views to find out what are the common elements, uh, what are the contrasts. Because each view that you take of the future, um, each paradigm that you look at the future through, is going to uh, uh, provide you more clues uh, about what's actually going to happen. And they'll highlight each other's weaknesses. Um, So um, the technological singularity uh, is one uh, filter or lens for me, and I have invented other ones as well that I use. So, uh, what could be other potential such lenses or potential futures that could compete or outright replace the technological singularity? I can give you a couple of examples. <coughs> for uh, um, There's uh, one idea I've mentioned in at least one of my novels, uh, which is the, the technological maximum. The uh, the analogy here, uh, or the metaphor, uh, comes from the idea that biologically we've been at what you might call the biological maximum for about 300 million years now. The Once the basic uh, toolkit of uh, body types and of uh, energy flow and, and um, genetic exchange uh, were developed in uh, around the, the Cambrian explosion, um, everything after that became just permutations, it became variations on a theme. So uh, 
everything from you know the beginning of the dinosaurs up till now uh, exhibits um, biology at it, its maximum developed potential prior to the v- development of tool-making intelligence. Um, but maybe tool-making intelligence uh, will hit the same kind of maximum. I'll give you an example of how that would work. Uh, let's say you could design an artificial intelligence uh, that um, had a fully developed or um, finalized physics, um, uh, assuming that such a thing could exist, chemistry and so on, uh, uh, a real solid knowledge, in other words, of uh, physical reality, and a massive internal space for doing simulations. Uh, you could using natural selection, evolve uh, designs for devices, um, for machines, for uh, living spaces, vehicles, whatever you want. Um, Once you reach the point where you can do that, you're at the technological maximum. Because no amount of extra intelligence thrown at uh, a system like that is actually going to make it any better. no godlike intelligence will actually be uh, better than uh, natural selection, as far as we know, um, for constructing uh, innovative solutions. Um, that, by the way, is a, a, a concept that comes from something called universal selection theory. Um, the, uh, in universal selection theory, um, uh, design is always... Um, uh, done by natural selection, even what we think of as intelligent or conscious design. Uh, when you examine it deeply enough, it turns out to use uh, rules of selection. Basically, the idea is um, there is no algorithm s- superior to natural selection for um, uh, problem solving, for generalized problem solving. Um, but so, what about the idea that um, evolution is way too slow and it basically works or natural selection works in the principle of throwing everything at the wall and looking at what's going to stick, mm-hmm. which is a great waste of resources and time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes, you know, as you pointed out, millions of years to evolve and to get there. So uh, I would imagine if, if we are to embrace that theory, then the the bottom line would be, I mean, all of our inventions like flight or even interplanetary uh, spaceships, etc., they came not through evolution but through development, through design, through our own intelligence. Uh, if you begin to look at the design processes that led to them, however, you find that they almost always function in a purely selectionist manner. Things are tried, don't work, something else is tried. You need to find a counterexample in order to, to, to further your argument. You need to find a case where iterative design did not occur in order to, to, uh, to, to argue what you're arguing. I see. Um, and I'm not sure that that can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with that. I'm not sure it could be done. Right. The, uh, the rate of change is not as important as the... Um, uh, the efficiency and stability of what uh, comes out at the end of change. Um, for instance, one of the things that I, I, I've said in, uh, in uh, one of my books um, 
is that uh, uh, tool making intelligence is extremely useful for a species which is moving from one environment to another. In other words, moving from one uh, ecological niche essentially to another. Human beings at the moment are engaged in a approximately 50,000 year long campaign of moving into new environments. Uh, so technology is extremely useful for that. Once you are established in a new environment, technology ceases to be the best tool for living in that environment. Direct adaptation becomes uh, superior. Really? Uh, well, think about it. Uh, if I'm using tools, then I'm expending all kinds of energy um, uh, and resources to um, build things, to use things, uh, whereas if I'm directly adapted to my environment, I don't need to expend uh, th that sort of energy at all uh, to use those resources. Yeah, but it seems to me, for example, people have been living, say, the Inu or the Eskimos, they've been living on the near the North Pole or in northern, uh, in the northern hemisphere for thousands of generations, perhaps, and we still need clothes. They still sure. need to wear. Uh, you know, they're tools because clothes are in a way tools, mm -hmm. you know, be it seal skins or bear skins or whatever, to survive. And I mean, if we, if they were to wait to evolve in order to be able to adapt to such an extreme environment, they would most likely die out. And it is the tools, that is to say the clothes, which allowed them to get there in the first place and continue to survive. And the better those tools and those mm -hmm. clothes and get the more adapted to that local environment they are. Isn't that the case? Yes, no, you're absolutely right. What's adapted, however, is the total system, the, the human, human plus technology uh, plus environment. Uh, you, you're never looking only at the human. You're always looking at the, the, the human and the system that they're part of. But also, um, you're only looking at the, uh, the blink of an eye in, in, uh, in uh, evolutionary time for us. So. Um, technology is extremely useful for vaulting from one um, uh, ecological uh, uh, situation into another. Um, but that may be its only advantage. Um, we don't know yet. Uh, this is a question that I've raised. The idea of the technological maximum is designed to raise questions like that. Um, so it produces a second lens that we can use at, as a contrast to the idea of the, the technological singularity. I'm not suggesting that it's true yeah, yeah. Um, any more than I would suggest that the, uh, the singularity is true. But once you have those two lenses, you begin to be able to create some very interesting um, uh, products, you know, contrasts, ideas, um, uh, analyses. That's a very interesting idea for me because, to, to tell you the truth, I wasn't familiar with it and, you know, I will definitely um, do my homework and educate myself further on, on, on that topic. But, so let me ask you then, what is the other uh, potential lens that you mentioned? Uh, there's another uh, model of, of the future that I specifically designed to, um, uh, to sort of poke um, Werner Vinge a little bit. Um, because Werner, of course, is, is one of the uh, primary authors and evangelists for the, the, the singularity. Yes. Um, and 
I've created uh, something I call the rewilding as a, uh, uh, a different perspective. Um, there's a famous uh, 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 saying, it's, it's known as Clark's Law, Clark's, uh, uh, after Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction writer. And Clark's Law states that the, um, uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is uh, indistinguishable from magic. So my version of that is Schrader's Law, which is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from nature. Um, if you have to use technology, you are not being successful. Um, that is the, the first sort of principle related to the idea of the technological maximum. Uh, if you are using technology, you are in a situation where you are not well adapted. Um, if your technology itself stands out from the natural system that it's a part of, then it's uh, in a state of thermodynamic in equilibrium uh, and is also not well designed. Um, the better designed your technology, the more it will become um, indistinguishable from the environment that it is in. Uh, because in a way, nature is the most advanced technology given its long evolution. If you yes. And trial and error. If you decide not to make a distinction between natural and artificial systems, um, then things like trees uh, just become instances of really good design. Um, and uh, uh, we're not talking necessarily about you know living starships or anything uh, uh, like that. What we're talking about here is um, uh, efficiency. And uh, uh, I I use this idea. Uh, for questions like the, the Fermi paradox, why have we not seen any alien civilizations? Well, perhaps it's because we're looking for um, waste. We're looking for um, uh, radiation, for signs of a civilization that is as inefficient as ours. Uh, but perhaps the more efficient they become, the more indistinguishable they become from the environment that they're in. Um, so if that's the case, then the, the great silence, as they call it, of, of the heavens may actually uh, uh, be covering or disguising um, uh, thousands or millions of advanced civilizations. Wow, that's, that's an absolutely fascinating thought. And, and again, something else that I just learned. So thank you for that, uh, Carol. <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating. We all need to keep learning, especially me, as it seems. Um, so those are two really fascinating and interesting alternative lenses to the technological singularity. So I have to share that um, just last night I started reading uh, one of your books, uh, perhaps even your first book. Uh, I think it's called Son of Sons. And I'm oh. about a quarter of the way so far. Okay. So let me ask you then. Which one of those lenses did you use to write that book? <laughs> uh, well, um, Son of Sons, um, you have to back up one novel, actually, for, uh, for me to answer that. Uh, I wrote um, Lady of Mazes in 2004, I believe it was, uh, and it was the most difficult book I'd ever written. It, it, Lady of Mazes is about the technology of culture and the culture of technology. The... Uh, the, the basic idea of that novel is that uh, um, 
we should be able to control the technologies that we allow to into our lives. Uh, and it's so it's set in a theoretical future world where um, you can decide what technologies will and will not uh, exist for you. That's basically what the Amish do, isn't it? Yes. Uh, this this is taking it to a uh, an ultimate extreme. Uh, I, what I have is something called uh, um, the manifolds, and a manifold is a set of or or a system of technologies that are allowable for you. Um, within your manifold, there are other people who who share it, um, uh, and you may tune out people from other manifolds um, uh, and simply not be aware that they're even there. Um, so I developed that. I, uh, among other things, developed uh, a, a, an alternative to uh, the, the concept of the ring world uh, as a vast living space in, in, uh, for humanity um, that was actually technologically possible. I created uh, three entirely new systems of government um, and uh, uh, a very complicated and intricate plot line with transhumanist elements and post-human creatures and all this sort of thing. And it was extremely tiring. Um, so when I was... Sounds very interesting though, so I'm going to ask <laughs> you to repeat that title because I think I'm going to be checking it out. Yes, it's Lady of Mazes. Uh, it is actually related to my first novel, Ventus. Um, but after that, uh, I just wanted to uh, kick back and relax with a story where things blew up. And uh, for a while, I'd had um, a vision in my mind of um, a weightless world uh, of air um, and uh, of, a, of a kid riding around on a wingless jet engine with a saddle and handlebars on it. And I wanted to figure out how to make that work. So I invented the world of Virga, um, which is a possible uh, future construct um, in deep space where you get um, a free-fall uh, shirt-sleeve environment. Um, and I wanted to have pirates, and I wanted to have sword fights, and I wanted to have uh, fun. Uh, so that was more than any sort of theoretical consideration <laughs> what uh, caused that book to come into existence. The, the fact that I had spent the previous book you know, designing, uh, intricately thinking through all the logic and the, the, the theories of change um, meant that with Son of Sons, I just wanted to blow stuff up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but at the same time, I have to say, since I've already gone through a quarter of the book, that it's very interesting. So would you mind um, giving us just a, a couple of sentences of describing the sort of a setup that the plot is unfolding, because that's very interesting. Well, you can't describe the, the plot of uh, Son of Sons without describing the world. And uh, exactly. the, the world is actually very simple. I, I asked myself uh, a question one day, um, how big a balloon can you make? Um, and if you're on, a, on the Earth, there's probably a simple answer to, to that. If you're in space, the answer is not so simple. Um, and the, the answer is actually constrained by a physical law known as the genes radius, which is uh, uh, how uh, large a sphere of gas you can have before that sphere collapses under its own gravity. Uh, so Virga is about a Pluto's worth of air, um, heated up, expanded, um, inside a shell, of carbon nanotube fiber 
which is only a, like a meter or two thick and very, very light, uh, floating in deep space. Uh, Virga is about 5,000 miles in diameter. It is a balloon. Um, it contains within it drifting pieces of rock, um, uh, ring-shaped cities that people build, uh, uh, nuclear fusion suns that light a few hundred miles in every direction, uh, all kinds of civilizations and um, uh, all kinds of interesting characters. And uh, I have run that idea past a number of people, including Vernon Vinci, who was uh, gracious enough to run some of the, the, the math for me. Um, and now know that it's a completely possible physical construct. Um, Aren't they called the Buckminster Fuller spheres? Those. Uh, well, the, it's it's also been referred to as a mini Dyson sphere because uh, Dyson, uh, the the physicist Freeman Dyson, um, came up with the idea of building a shell around the sun to trap. 100% of the, uh, uh, the sun's energy. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is maximize living space. Um, and uh, it's actually pretty easy to do. <laughs> but what you get out of it is a world where you can have people um, with uh, artificial or mechanical wings strapped to their backs that uh, allow them to fly around. And you can have wood and rope uh, wheels that you spin as, small, as towns. Uh, where gravity is a municipal utility and uh, um, uh, uh, suns are artificial, you know, it's a, uh, a lot of fun. And I ended up writing five books in that series uh, because I just couldn't stay away from it. It's a trilogy with five books. Yeah, that's, yes. That's another interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of accidental, but uh. <laughs> okay. So. Um, that, that's very interesting. I, I have to say that uh, I'm enjoying the book so far Good. very much. And, um, and it's indeed very relaxing and uh, captivating. But I would uh, also check out uh, Lady of Maces. Yeah. Um, but going back to the idea of the technological singularity. So now let's say that it might not be the most probable future in your estimate, but it's definitely one of the possible ones. Mm -hmm. Do you agree on that? Yes, but you would need to um, uh, lay out for me all the drivers. Uh, one of the things that one talks about uh, in, in Foresight is um, uh, uh, trends and drivers. Drivers are the things that cause change. So uh, how about, you know, the, the usual replies that Ray Kurzweil gives to those is Moore's law or what he calls the law, of, the law of accelerating returns mm -hmm. uh, as an exponential trend, uh, which, according to Ray, permeates not only the time period since we had Moore's law, but at least since, you know, the 1890s census, population census in the United States, um, and onwards from there. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and I mean, there are some arguments that people have made about evolution in general, that evolution is an ever accelerating process. You mm -hmm. know, it took, say, roughly two billion years before the first uh, single-celled organisms came to exist in the sort of primordial oceans of the planet. I mean, let's go even further back. It took like probably 13, 14 billion years ago we had the Big Bang and we had the, the birth of the universe as far as we know. So it took something like six or seven or ten billion years for our planet to form about four billion years ago roughly. Then it took an extra two billion years for the first single-celled organisms to come to exist. 
then it took hundreds of millions of years, you know, to evolve uh, simple organisms, simple multicellular organisms. Then we had the reign of the dinosaurs for hundreds of millions of years. Uh, Homo sapiens um, has been around, I mean, hominids have been around for a few million years and Homo sapiens probably for a hundred or a couple hundred thousand years at the most. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that even evolution is exhibiting this sort of accelerating change. Well, if you, uh, uh, I, I don't want to put it crudely, but if you cherry pick your evidence, then you can find, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, clear acceleration of change. But I, I would ask you, why is it that my experience of air travel has not changed at all in the last 30 years? Yeah. Um, Some of the um, comments that I quite often get on singularityweblog.com are people pointing out uh, that space travel hasn't made any progress since we've been to the moon. Actually, you can argue, according to some people, that we've back, we've went backwards. We've mm -hmm. lost some of the knowledge that we've had then, uh, and the same applies to you know uh, air flight. Mm -hmm. the, the peak, arguably, of air flight was the Concorde, which is a 1960s technology, and it's been out of you know commission for a few years now. Yeah, well. Let me say though that I think that while these are easy arguments to make, I think the, they're not actually very good arguments against the singularity. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a, a more nuanced uh, 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 question about the singularity is whether any system can experience um, exponential growth if only parts of it are exponentially growing. Um, in systems theory, you have an idea uh, known as the limiting factor, um, and that is the, uh, the part of the system that uh, basically governs the speed of change everywhere else, because everything depends on it, um, and it uh, may be inflexible in uh, its rate of change. Um, a limiting factor for human beings, for instance, is our, uh, our life cycle. Uh, so the fact that we live uh, 60 to, to 90 years, uh, but it takes us 20 years to, uh, to mature and things like these. Um, you can introduce rapid change into a, a system with a limiting factor like that. Um, so Moore's Law, uh, technological uh, change, uh, new manufacturing systems, and so on and so forth. But if all of the parts of the system cannot keep up with that rate of change, then the system will go down to the rate of change that it can sustain. It doesn't matter if uh, there are parts of the system that are capable of lifting off in some idealized world on their own. Um, the, the question is, uh, can the system as a whole uh, undertake that kind of change? And when there are any limiting factors, um, the answer is no. Uh, you can destroy the system, you can reconfigure it, um, but in the case of uh, human-driven uh, change, for instance, the limiting factors will almost always be, you know, have to do with us. So one of the limited fa limiting factors uh, in terms of translating the exponential growth of computing to the rest of our civilization, in your opinion, is longevity. Um, not longevity so much. 
inertia. Uh, the, there's inertia of various kinds: social inertia, psychological. Um, I'm trying to 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 get that thought that you said that human lifespan is 60 to 90 years, and I'm trying to push you on it and see if you would admit that perhaps we have made some progress in the last hundred years or so, or maybe for the last 2,000 years, and perhaps we would even make faster progress within the next 50 to 100 years in terms of life expectancy. Oh, absolutely. No, 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 no question of that. And, and, uh, and then my argument would be perhaps that would change from a limiting factor to not the li- to not being a limiting factor anymore. Well, it, uh, a limiting factor of what? Of uh, what I'm looking at is the rate of change. Uh, and, and right now, uh, human beings have a certain um, uh, speed at which they can adapt. Um, you, you can learn uh, a new profession at a certain rate. Um, you can learn a new city that you've moved to at a certain rate. Now we can augment all of these things, but at, at a certain point, um, you know, obvious questions such as why are we bothering um, come to mind. Uh, uh, to, to, say, to take a slight um, different angle at the problem, another question you can ask about the, uh, the technological singularity is, why do we assume that we have no control over the rate of change? If, if uh, exponential change is, uh, you know, uh, threatening, whether it's a good thing or a bad, uh, if it's in the offing, why do we assume that, uh, that it will simply happen? Now, why not have a rate of change that is actually um, the rate that we like or that we want? Um, if you are saying that uh, we are entering an ever-accelerating exponential uh, period of change, are you saying that um, humanity has no control over its own destiny? Uh, and why should that necessarily be the case? One of the, uh, the, the, the things that's been annoying me for the last year or so, and I've been speaking about this fairly vocally, is how people, particularly in the science fiction community, but also in the, the, the technology community, can imagine anything changing, can imagine um, new scientific discoveries can imagine uh, biotech, nanotech, uh, infotech, all these things being utterly transformative. And yet, um, nobody seems to be able to imagine um, that we might change the way that we govern ourselves. No one seems to be talking about the, the possibility that uh, um, all of these tools that we have developed could be used to um, make the decision-making in large groups that human beings do more efficient, more equitable, uh, more useful. Um, And when you actually ask that question, you are getting right to the heart of the driver of change, the driver of that exponential curve. Why is it that it has to uh, be ungoverned? It's a simple question. So, so does that have to do something with the current socio-political system that we live in? I don't know. What what other capitalism that impacts on the idea that it has to be ungoverned, so sort of laissez-faire, mm. or do you do you suppose like that we could sort of come up with a top-down 
approach which would allow us to, as you said, set the pace of our own development or become masters of our destiny in a way. Sure. The, uh, the, the manifolds of uh, the, the novel Lady of Mazes are a, uh, a little sort of uh, parable about this idea of controlling your own technologies. You're, why should we not be able to say, um, I want to live in a world uh, of 1990s technology. That's, I loved it, right? This is what I want to do. That's a very interesting question. But how do you resolve issues of personal freedom in, in a context like that? Because, for example, I can respect your right as a Mennonite or as, a, as an Amish to do so, but I do not respect uh, the fact that you might want to prevent me. <laughs> well, Lady of Mazes is all about those issues uh, and those questions. And uh, I do have answers to those, but you know, they're, they're typically several hundred pages of you know, plot development to get to them. Um, yes, there are many sort of cans of worms that are opened uh, when, when you go that route. Um, but, uh, but the core questions remain. Um, and uh, uh, the assumptions about, uh, uh, that underlie the, the idea of the technological singularity as a, uh, a, a historical inevitability, um, uh, you know, very much I'm acutely aware of them and, and hence cannot, cannot get fully on board uh, with that. Uh, and, you know, as someone who invents mythologies for a living, um, I can I can see the mythological side of uh, the singularity, um, and uh, um, that's I, again another thing that I needle Werner Vinge about is you know that's a very nice mythology you invented. Here's another one. Um, <laughs> uh, why not invent more? Why not have differences? Um, uh, I am not interested in arguments uh, of, of inevitability when it comes to these matters. So, you're very cautious about uh, saying that the technological singularity is one of the probable uh, uh, future scenarios that we might have. But let's imagine for a moment that it does happen, that we do have either a soft takeoff or a hard takeoff of artificial intelligence. Um, Ray Kurzweil is often criticized for the optimism that he perceives uh, the singularity with. So, in your opinion, assuming that a technological singularity is unfolding, or will be unfolding, what are the chances of humanity to survive? Um, this question is related to uh, questions of transhumanism and posthumanism, obviously. And uh, I have a couple of little analogies that I, I, I sort of use for that. Um, uh, the, <clears throat> instead of transhumanism, let's imagine uh, translionism. Um, a translionist world is, is a world in which we have optimized lions. We have made them better killing machines. We have made them as smart as ourselves. We have made them, given them titanium claws, we have made them incredibly strong, we have made them capable of eating anything, we've made them more aggressive. Um, we have a transcendent lion now. Um, what good does that do? What's its function? What has it done? 
um, they will almost inevitably wipe out everything else and then starve to death. <clears throat> okay, so... Um, They're so smart. Why would they set a situation in which they would starve to death? Uh, intelligence only serves the body. Um, the, the body is the, uh, the driver, intelligence is the passenger. Um, a lot of people don't believe that, but uh, the idea that that's not the case comes from a very old uh, um, uh, Aristotelian Platonic uh, tradition, which is basically overthrown at this point. Um, but let's take another example, transdogism. <laughs> and in this case, let's, let's ask my little uh, cross-breed Jack Russell Terrier and Schnauzer, um, what would be the ultimate transcendent or, or um, trans dog, right? Um, and, you know, uh, we would have our own ideas about this, but if let's ask the dog. And the dog would come up with, a, with ideas like, well, um, the perfect sort of transcendent dog would be able to pee on demand forever, right? Um, would be able to bark and shatter windows. So the, the dog has its own values. And... It thinks, it may think that it is transcending those values or imagining a transcendence of those values, but it's just amplifying those values. When we think about um, transcending our humanity, we're never transcending our humanity. We're just amplifying who we already are. And physically, uh, I think we're likely to um, enter a translionist future. Um, a, uh, a future where we eat up all our resources, choke and die, because we're already, you know, most of the way are there already. Um, and psychologically, we're basically trapped in the trans-dogist manner. We don't know what something higher than humanity would be. Um, we've only recently sort of figured out that evolution does not have a direction. Um, and since evolution does not have a direction, uh, the whole trans part of the transhumanist movement ceases to really be coherent. Um, rather than transhumanism, uh, I believe in inhumanism. Um, what we may do is transform ourselves into something that is not But there is no philosophical, moral, or um, logical way to st state that that a new entity is better than what we are now. And therefore, we don't know if it is desirable or not desirable. No, it might be desirable for us. Certainly desire for, desirable for the lion to have better claws or for the dog to be able to pee <laughs> for hours at a time. Everywhere. Sure. Um, but there's no objective measure for what would be better than humans. Um, so, what... I would see um, in the singularity is rapid evolution, but not going in any direction. Um, so rapid change, the taking the brakes off change, and what comes out the other uh, end of that is whatever has actually been selected for to survive in the environment. Natural selection never, ever ceases to be in play. So the birth of art of super smart artificial intelligence would not sort of take control, if you will, on, of, of its own destiny 
and steer uh, the usage of resources or... It will do all those things, but it is still, while it does that, entirely under um, the uh, control of natural selection. You, you never get out from under natural selection. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much control you have over, over resources. Natural selection always happens. You go forwards in time and you find out what's there and what's not there anymore. That's how natural selection works. Uh, so you fast forward a million years, which of these uh, transcendently intelligent human or superhuman entities are still around? Well, some of them died out. Some of them didn't, <laughs> right? Um, natural selection continues. It will always continue. Uh, the reason for that is that it's a, a logical function of uh, um, entities moving in time. Um, and it can't be circumvented by intelligence. I'm trying to find out where my logical flaw is in assuming that, you know, if you're super smart, artificial intelligence, you know, survival is of the highest value to you. Therefore, you would probably do your best to arrange, uh, you know, your environment in the most favorable way towards your survival. Sure, and that the, that may involve getting rid of um, uh, systems that are too costly for you. Um, and one of the costliest systems that you will almost immediately get rid of will be thinking. <clears throat> um, thinking is something that takes all kind of resources. Um, and is absolutely unnecessary for most successful organisms. Um, if you're successful, you shouldn't have to be thinking. If, if you're on the golf course and you're trying to you know, uh, put the golf ball from here over there, if you're thinking about it, you're probably not gonna do a very good job. The, when you master a task, you know that you've mastered it because you cease to think about it. Thinking is again, like technology, one of those transitional activities. It allows an organism to go from situation A to more favorable situation B. But once you're in more favorable situation B, you no longer need to think. And this is one of the, 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 the problems with the idea of um, uh, transcendently intelligent computers is what the heck are they thinking about? Um, what is all of this thinking for? Uh, because there are no systems in the in in, in the human body that do not have a, a biolog biologically oriented function, um, and that includes thinking. Um, it's all about survival and being on the Darwinian treadmill. Uh, you don't get off it, um, even if you are a um, a super intelligent computer. So, putting aside the, the actual or potential trends of artificial intelligence, what about other developments such as genetics, robotics, and nanotechnology, and so on? All of these are great um, uh, sort of enablers of change and, uh, you know, fantastic um, sources of resources and power. I mean, uh, it's easy for me to uh, imagine um, uh, 
uh, fast forwarding 100 years or 200 years to a state where we are dismantling uh, many of the planets in the solar system, building Dyson swarms around the sun, capturing all that energy, building um, computer tronium um, uh, matryoshka brains and 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 um, and living forever and all that sort of thing but time always passes and the universe always selects uh, this never ceases um, so you may have a rapid enormous flowering of of life and civilization and technology and so forth um, but in the longest of long runs, it is going to be natural selection that uh, determines which of these systems um, continue to survive. And the ones that are selected for um, might be intelligent and conscious, but I don't see any particular reason why they should be, because uh, for 500 million years now, we've had... Uh, great success on this planet without really needing intelligence. Um, organisms are just as likely to become, uh, to evolve to become more complex or to become less complex. Um, evolution is a random walk with a, what's called a left wall. <clears throat> um, in other words, uh, um, organisms can get more complicated but there's a minimum to how complicated they can be. And when you do a random walk with the left wall, things fall off when they, they get uh, uh, too simple and die. Uh, so the trend becomes that they get more and more complicated. That's why evolution appears to have a direction. But it's just a random walk. And that random walk continues for any or organism or system, uh, including the ones that we're going to create. Carl, those are some absolutely uh, fascinating and uh, intellectually and philosophically very stimulating um, ideas. And I have to admit, I learned a lot from uh, talking to you today. Uh, so I really appreciate your time. Unfortunately, we'll have to bring our interview to an end. So, uh, because time is advancing. So let me ask you the usual two questions that I close my interviews with. So, first of all, second last question is, where can people go and find more about you and your work? Hmm. Because, I mean, if my viewers feel the same way that I feel right now, I want to find out a lot more about what you do, and I want to read a lot more of your books. Hmm. Well, uh, you can start on my website, which is uh, uh, kschrader.com. Um, uh, or you can go to Amazon or any of the, the other uh, e-book sellers uh, and uh, uh, find copies of my books. Uh, I'm also uh, to be found in major bookstores, if you still read, uh, read the, uh, the Dead Tree editions. Uh, <laughs> um, so <laughs> I can be found. Um, and uh, if you know any of the other people working uh, in, in this area, some of them know me and, and know my work and probably have opinions. <laughs> Maybe a good book to start with, uh, because I know you have a few books. Mm. So, which one would be a good, probably, introduction to Carl, Carl Schroeder's work? Uh, well, I write two kinds of books. Uh, the first kind of book uh, is um, philosophically driven, um, complex, and part of an ongoing 
conversation that, I, that I'm having with people like Charles Strauss and Werner Vinge and so on, uh, and Peter Watts. Um, and those are books like Ventus and Lady of Mazes. And f- for that kind of thing, I would start with Lady of Mazes. Um, the other kind of books uh, are where things blow up. And uh, those are books like Son of Sons. Um, and, uh, uh, and I have books that straddle uh, things like that. Permanence, um, uh, for instance, uh, is a space opera that asks the question of um, how can you construct a permanent civilization, um, not just a long-lived one, but a, a, a permanent one. And um, uh, uh, astrophysicist Milan Sergovich wrote a couple of papers uh, about my solution to the Fermi paradox that I uh, developed in that novel. Um, but Lady of Mazes definitely is the, the novel that pertains most to the things that we've been talking about today. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, let me just uh, remind our viewers and listeners uh, that if you guys enjoy this interview in particular or Singularity one-on-one in general, I would really appreciate if you would support the show and you can do that in one of two ways. Uh, number one is perhaps you could take a minute and simply go to iTunes and write a very brief review for the show which would uh, spread the word and allow other people to enjoy those fantastic interviews. Um, and the other way is, of course, to simply go to our donations page and uh, uh, send any um, funds that you deem appropriate uh, with, of course, the understanding that all of those would simply go towards bringing more and better interviews like this one. Now, uh, going back to Carl, the very last question that I always ask of my interviews, Carl, is um, of my interviewees, that is, is um, if you have a single message, the most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from you today, what would you like that to be? Um, Well, I would say that you have to keep moving forward. Um, To me, the technological singularity was a really interesting idea in 1985. Um, Transhumanism was a really interesting idea uh, in in the 80s. there have been a lot of things that have changed in our understanding of the world, the understanding, our understanding of cognition. Um, you can start breaking these things down if you simply start using um, uh, extended cognition and, and distributed cognition as your lens for talking about what intelligence and consciousness are to begin with. Um, and when you start doing that, you start veering off in all kinds of new, different directions. If I'm inventing alternatives to the technological singularity, it's to keep moving forward. It's to keep um, our thought moving and, and keep us from sort of growing moss and, and, and rust on, um, uh, uh, you know, on ourselves and our, our ability to uh, adapt and change. Um, the singularity is not the most interesting current idea. It's old at this point. Um, you've got to keep up. You've got to look at what's going on now. Um, uh, I, Jane Bennett has an idea in uh, her book, Vibrant Matter. Uh, she, uh, it's an old English word called a deodant. Um, and uh, I use that in a, in a recent story. It's, it's an entity which is neither a human being nor a physical object. Um, 
but has characteristics of both. Things that hover in between agency and um, inanimate uh, existence. Um, that's the sort of thing that's interesting me right now. Um, the questions of uh, artificial intelligence, of, uh, of intelligence and consciousness themselves are receding now. More interesting and new questions are uh, uh, coming to the fore about uh, a kind of new version of vitalism. There's a new uh, sort of movement uh, of philosophy coming out of Europe called speculative realism. That's inc incredibly important. Um, and uh, it has to do with the physical world and our understanding of, of science and, and uh, how it operates and what true things can actually be said. So all of this is happening right now. You've got to keep moving. You've got to keep rolling forward. Um, so, sure, take the singularity, use it. It's a lens. Um, develop other lenses. Use other lenses. Keep looking forward. Keep looking for new ideas for uh, blind spots um, and uh, uh, the world will continue to be a very interesting place. Carl Schroeder, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Yeah.